Second Corinthians chapter 11. Are we on? Second Corinthians 11. And I would like to read verses two through four. The title of the message this evening is strategies of the devil. Strategies of the devil. Second Corinthians 11, beginning with verse two, for I am jealous over you with godly jealousy. For I have espoused to you one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety. So your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if ye receive another spirit which ye have not received, or another gospel which ye have not accepted, ye might well bear with him. Then, then in verse 3 again, I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that's in Christ. Strategies of the devil. Let's have a word of prayer. Again, Lord, it is our privilege and honor to be able to be in your presence, but also to know that where two or three are gathered, you're here in our midst. We cannot tell you thank you enough. There are many people that did not wake up today, but we're here. You saw fit to allow us one more time to gather, to bring praise and glory to your name. And now, God, as I begin to minister the word of the Lord, I need you to hide me behind your precious cross. I need you to give them ears to hear what we have to say as we declare what we believe is the word of the Lord for us this day. Be with each of us. In Jesus' mighty name, amen, amen, amen. The first three chapters of Genesis certainly are pivotal to what goes on throughout the Bible. In fact, when you look at the creation story in Genesis 1, you're... You have to be struck by the first few words of Genesis 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God. Because if you have no struggles with that, any difficulties at all with those first few words, you won't have a problem with anything else that's in that Bible. He gives us the story of how he made the heavens and the earth. Towards the end of chapter 1, he explains how he made man. He said, let us make man in our image. In chapter 2, he amplifies the thinking behind the making of man and gives us explicit details of how mankind was created, male and female. But then it's in chapter three where we discover that the Lord gives the command to them and the adversary comes along and deceives them. And it's that deception that Paul picks up on here in second Corinthians chapter 11. The one thing we need to Recognize, first of all, is that Satan does not like purity. He doesn't like holiness. He doesn't like anything to remain pure and dedicated to God. The last sentence of verse 2 speaks about Paul's desire to present the Corinthians to the Lord as a chaste virgin. All of his labors, his spiritual efforts are to produce a people that are pure. That word chaste, synonymous with the word virtuous. You know as well as I do, the Corinthian culture was not virtuous. It was full of lawlessness and licentiousness and governed by various lusts. 
These people came out of sin into the kingdom of God, and now they're in the kingdom of God. And Paul is speaking to them of presenting them as the holy people to the Lord one day. That's where the adversary is absolutely opposed to Paul's objective. He's not interested in seeing the people of God remain chaste. The image of a virgin, of course, reminds us of a lady that's been untouched by a man that has not been with anyone until the time of wedlock occurs. But the adversary does not want to see the people of God in a state of perfection or holiness. He understands or he prefers to see people in a state of defilement. Now, why is that? Well, sin is able to thrive wherever you have people that are living in sin. It can hardly exist where people attempt to live clean lives. In fact, germs can't remain or abide or exist in a sterile environment. Think about hospitals. The reason hospitals go out of their way to clean all of the instruments and all of the rooms is so that you don't end up with staph infection or some other kind of deadly infection that could take you out or destroy your life. And when we think of a church, a church is a hospital. People with broken hearts, wounded spirits, people been hurt by their family members, hurt by employers or, or enemies, people that have come through very difficult times and they come and gather with people who also at one time were broken and are being healed by the power of God. But in a church... The life of God, the presence of God can't flourish the way the Lord wants it to if that church has become a place of bitterness and unforgiveness. In order for God to have a church that's a bride without spot, blemish or wrinkle, then that preacher has to work to present to God a chaste virgin unto Christ. The preacher has to have the objective of taking up people who have been unclean and forming them into a holy group of people that have one desire. That's to serve God, not to be like the world, but to be like God. Satan's operations are tricky, devious. He understands that the only way to defile a people is to cause those people to engage in sin. For example, if you take a small community of 300 people that consists of approximately 40 to 50 families, If divorce and fornication runs rampant in that community, think of the effects that it will have on those families. Be very difficult to have a community barbecue when the the men are looking at other men that probably have been with their wife, knowing that they've been with other wives. Very difficult for the ladies to establish relationships in that community with other ladies that they know have been with their husband. It causes the teenagers to have relationships that are not long lasting, but, but very cautious. They worry about people and condemnation and, and guilt and shame thrives in an environment like that. And it gives birth to discord and strife. You see it over and over again. It's for this reason God did not want the children of Israel to permit adultery and fornication and to encourage it because he understood that this would lead to a defilement in the culture. This is what the devil wants. This is why he wants to legitimize it. He wants to bring license to it. And so that people will see that there's no problem at all. He wants people to be very aware of sin and to have access to it. When the preacher 
is drenched in sin and caught in all kinds of sins, then that preacher can't preach on certain things in that church. His conscience won't let him. And when people in the church are involved with certain things, then the adversary works through condemnation to keep them from getting involved with this or keeps them from getting involved with that because he uses shame as shackles to keep people from rising up to volunteer to do anything. But what is the blood for? The blood brings forgiveness. None of us are perfect. None of us ever will be perfect. Despite our imperfections and our infirmities, God has provided for us the means of access to him. And we can come boldly because of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can sleep comfortably at night knowing that your relationship with him is not based on how well you do in the race, but how well he did on Calvary for you as you run the race. That's the key. So the devil, he wants people to be exposed to sin because by raising awareness of all of these activities that are sinful, he increases the chances that they will occur in the young people and in other people. Now, this is why when you think of our culture and we think of schools and we think of television and radio, you have to see the the influx of ideas that come in. One year when I was out, uh, one time when I was out preaching on the West Coast, I think I was holding a revival out in Oregon, and, and I found out that in Oregon and in, uh, in California, they said, once your child steps out of the house and puts that foot on the sidewalk, that child is now government property. And once they get onto the school grounds, mom and dad have no say-so at all. Everything absolutely changes. Now, you don't have to agree with what they're introducing to the kids at a young age in the school system in their curriculum, but it really doesn't matter because you can't do anything about it in a situation like that. But my point very simply is this. The adversary uses people to produce and increase sin in the earth. And the only way he can do it, he has to do it through people that wear blue jeans, suits, dresses, and skirts. The devil has to have a human vessel through whom to manifest himself and to speak his ideas. That's what he's looking for every day, a volunteer. So coming back to 2 Corinthians 11 then, Paul in verse 3 says, the devil deceives by subtlety. Now what is that? Sometimes we'll see the word craftiness. But a subtle person or the word itself, subtlety, has to do with making fine distinctions. Somebody who's carefully parsing something or dividing it up. In this case, we're dealing with language. God said to Adam and Eve, of every tree in the garden you may eat, but of this one particular tree you're not supposed to eat, the adversary comes along and he asks one question. Did God really say that? He's trying to make a distinction in what was actually said and what you think you heard. That's the trickery. And this is what the devil, he, he does. God speaks plain, plainly. God speaks clearly. But people still have the tendency to turn and go in the opposite direction of what he said. I can give you an example of this. My father's job growing up, he traveled a lot. He was a uh, coach and on the board, sits on the board of directors for the Olympic boxing team. 
And so in Colorado Springs, they had all of these people would fly out there and train for the Olympics. And that's what they did very often uh, for the final year leading up to the Olympics. And so my dad's job took him to Central America a lot and then to Europe. And so when it was time for them to go on the trip, they pulled me and my brothers into the kitchen and say, look, we're getting ready to go so and so place. We're going to be gone for three days. Now, during the three days, you make sure you take care of the yard. You make sure everybody gets gets to school telling my older brothers this. And and you make sure that you don't have so-and-so in this house. I don't want any trouble. When we get back here, the house better be standing. It's one of them kind of conversations. Well, of course, you know, mom and dad get in the car, head to the airport. My brothers, they wait until just when they thought the airplane was up in the air and it was wheels up. And I mean, they're on that telephone calling friends. Mom and dad are gone. We got the house to ourselves. Come on by. And so then this is what I'd say. The baby boy, the one who was abused and beaten over and over again because he was the tattletale. I'd say, well, hold on. Mama and daddy said that they didn't want anybody over. Well, no, no, that's not what they said. What they said was they didn't want these people over. We're not inviting them. We're inviting some other people. Now, the way I heard it, mom and dad said, don't have these people over. But that sentence took in all of your no good friends. But they heard it. Just don't invite those people. So those people came over. (laughs) And by the time mom and dad came home, you say, well, how how did it how did turn out? Well, you know, you you'd be surprised with a few 50 cent pieces and some snicker bars would do for a little kid. You know, I, I, I didn't see a thing. I didn't hear a thing. Mom say, how did it go? They were like angels. That's all I that, that, that's all I know. But here's the point. They changed the language. They heard what was clear. Mom and dad were absolutely plain. But they decided they want to do something different. And anybody who's interested in changing the language of God in order to get around a perceived obstacle to sin, that person is dangerous because they have no regard for God. They have no regard for God's word and they have no regard for your soul. Now, you can see that in our culture every day, what they're doing with language and with words. Most of our legislation is passed by lawyers and they go out of their way to make sure that when they craft a bill, that language is ambiguous. It's vague. Very oftentimes they use obscure terms. And the reason for that is so that in the generations to come, nobody can ever put a finger on this and say this is exactly what this meant. And then they can argue about it back and forth in the courts. They know exactly what they're doing. Now, it's possible to be precise with your speech. Bankers do it all the time. Pay your money or lose your home. But in other areas, people are vague. And the adversary wants you to believe that when you look into the scriptures, the scriptures are not as plain as they appear to be. But here's what the word says. Thou shalt not steal. What does that mean that I just can't steal on Monday? That means you can't steal at all. Well, pastor, hold on. What if, what if I love to steal? What if I enjoy stealing? What if I'm emotionally committed to stealing? And I feel good when I do. Who are you to tell me I don't have the right to feel good? After all, I could have been born a thief 
Even though the Bible says I'm not supposed to steal, I could have an inherent genetic disposition that leads me to come to your house and take your car keys and your house keys and your vases and everything else. And and you would say you've lost your mind because what is plain in Scripture is not going to change just because people try to change the way they interpret it. And this is what God wants you to see. The strategies of the devil is to deceive us through his subtlety. If he can be crafty with a language, he can find a preacher, he can find a lawyer, and you'll be able to find anybody that'll make this Bible say what they want it to say, even though you understand clearly what it means. If I said to you two plus two equals four, you'd say right. Well, if I said three plus one equals four, you'd say okay. If I said six minus two equals four, you'd say that's fine. But if I turned around and I said, and I took the same amount of objects and had them on the table, and I said two plus two equals five, then you say, I don't agree. But I'm saying, I'm telling you, it's really five. It's just that all your life you've been told it's four. But you need to understand that if you just count it a different way, you will come up with five. That's the only way this thing is going to operate. And that is how this earth functions. We have an adversary using people to cause folks to think that what they have known to be true has never been right. It's a strategy of the adversary. Look again at verse three. So he speaks of our minds being corrupted. What is corruption? Corruption is contamination. It's deterioration from the norm or the standard. What is simplicity? Simplicity is a quality or a state that is free from complexity. It's not hard. This isn't difficult to understand. And and the the, the fact that you have to have five people to explain a very simple sentence to you is, is evidence that it's not as difficult as you think it is. You're just looking for somebody to give you an interpretation that fits the belief that you yourself want to have. But when the scripture says something plainly and clearly, you stick with the plain and clear meaning. Otherwise, you allow that mind to be corrupted. Now, you have to know what the standard is in order for there to be deterioration from the standard. If all you have ever seen in your life are rusty nails, you'd have a hard time believing that there could be a nail without rust on it. You wouldn't know what to do. You say, well, what is this? It's like I heard a preacher one time said he grew up all his life eating spaghetti as a poor child in the South. All they ever had to put on their spaghetti was ketchup. And he said when he was an adult, or, or, or late teen and went over to somebody's house and they made spaghetti and they put some spaghetti sauce on there. He ate that stuff and said, what in the world is this? They said, that's spaghetti sauce. I don't want any spaghetti sauce. Give me some ketchup. Think about it. So that's the mind at work. The mind adjusts to particular things, whether it's right or whether it's wrong. And the adversary uses the culture against us because he understands that. When God spoke to Adam and Eve in that garden and said, you can eat of every tree in the garden but this one. Don't touch this one. This gives you knowledge of which you don't have any, any learning right now. He said, I don't want you to touch this at all. They were clear when they understood it. He was clear when he spoke it. But the adversary came along and here was his question. Did God really say that? He did not mean that you would die. 
He did not mean that you would lose your life. What he meant to tell you, but he failed to tell you was that in the day that you eat, you'll be like him. And so Eve said, well, well, yeah, that, that sounds pretty good. And she grabbed that fruit and stuck it in her husband's mouth and he, he bit and she chewed and they, and sure enough, they realized immediately that, that something was wrong. But the point of the matter was when God spoke to Adam and said, don't eat, he knew exactly what God was saying. And there's never been a time in your life when God has been ambiguous with you and you knew he was dealing with you. It's like as a little person, when we go visit our, our neighbors or some relatives, then we be in a car, you know. I'm little. My older brothers by now, they're, they're out of the house and they're grown and in the military. So we're, we're driving to somebody's house. And as we're coming down the road, going up into the driveway, I'm getting the speech. You say, what's the speech? The speech is, we're coming over here to visit your godmother. And when we get in that house, all I want you to do is join those other kids and go down in the basement. The adults are going to be upstairs talking. You're not going to be up there with the adults getting into the conversation. I don't want you ripping and running through the house. I don't want you to reach out and grab anything. Nothing better break that comes from your hand. All I want you to do is go sit down with those kids and just have a good time in that spot. Do you understand me? Yes, sir. I understand. Get out of the car, go into the house. And sure enough... If if I got to running out of their sight, I'd be moving real fast. And then just when I come through the door face where they could see me, I'd walk and then just take off and start running again because I understood what he said clearly. Either you do what I've told you to do. or I'll warm your bottom. See, that's what he said. God said to Adam and Eve, you can eat of every tree. But this one tree you to avoid That's when the adversary came along and he asked the question, did he really say that? And I've had plenty of friends in my youth that said to me, you know, your mom not going to care if you do this. Nobody's going to tell her. See, or even if your mom gets mad at you, you can go ahead and do it now and just take the beating and the punishment afterwards. That's only going to last a little while. Hear that? that? That's how the adversary is. The temptation comes. Now, in the culture that we have presently, because that mind is being affected by people, you have people that don't even want to take the time to think about what's right and what's wrong. You see a little kid in school, the teacher hand out a puzzle, put a problem on the board, then point out somebody, say, tell me about this problem and how to work through to its solution. And they'll say, well, that's too hard. Now, what the child is saying is, I don't want to apply my mind To that problem right now. It'd be different if somebody said it in Chinese or Italian and they couldn't understand the language. But when they say it's too hard, that person doesn't want to apply it. And Christians who begin to think about the ways of God and say, well, it's too hard to be a Christian. It's not too hard at all. We just don't want to be disciplined in our thinking. Because you'd rather just let loose and give people a piece of your mind and say whatever you want to say. Well, like I heard one one preacher talking about a lady in his church one time. The lady said, God gave me the gift of telling people off. Think about that. (laughs) I've met a few people believe they have that gift, too. But but that's one gift in a local church we can do without. we We can do without without that one. So the mind is important. If you consider 
the entertainment that comes on television, the movies, oftentimes the radio. There's a reason when you go to these theme parks that those theme parks and certain forms of entertainment are called amusement. See, we take the verb muse, which means to think, to ponder, to contemplate. But when you add the a prefix or that a privative to it, then it negates it. So it means to not think. And you watch that television, you see the programs, and they, they, just, they make the father look like he's a nincompoop and he doesn't know anything. And everybody's constantly falling over themselves laughing at how dumb he is. And then the mother in the sitcoms and in the television shows, she's always the very easygoing, tolerant person. Doesn't know a thing about discipline, but just gets along and lets everything go. But they make the teenagers to be the geniuses in the television shows. They're smarter than mom and dad. So the culture sits and listens to that and they take that in as a form of entertainment. And before you know it, a stereotype forms. And this is why in this nation right now we have very little honor and respect for older people. You, you go to some grocery stores and you watch a young person drive a car into the parking lot and you'll see them. They'll beat an older person into the parking space. You'll see, you'll see kids at high school games, grandma and grandpa, somebody else's grandma and grandpa be sitting right there, and sometimes teenagers will be cussing with them sitting right there. No honor, respect. Where does this come from? It's being taught to them. The mind is not being applied properly to the things of this life until the things of this world have come in and shaped the way we interact with one another. Paul says the result of this is the corruption of the mind from the simplicity that's in Christ. And now we have people not interested in God, not interested in religion. Don't think about church at all. I've been around people that as soon as they find out I'm a preacher, they go to cussing and telling as many foul and vulgar jokes as they can just to see what kind of reaction they'll get out of me. Oh, excuse me, Reverend. Excuse my French. Well, I know that wasn't French because I heard what I understood what you said. And, and you don't need to apologize to me because I have no power to send you to heaven or hell. You need to be talking to the man upstairs. He's the one that has the power to deal with that soul. That's where it begins. So the adversary, through his strategies, has slowly but surely rocked our generation to sleep. We've fallen further and further away from God and from the simplicity that's in Christ. What's the result? Verse 4. Another Jesus That's another gospel, another savior, and a false way of salvation. Now, we need to know what the standard is, the genuine is, in order to be able to see the deterioration. What is the gospel? Jesus Christ came into this world, born of a virgin, lived in this world without sin, died on the cross in your place and in my place, received the condemnation that we should have received. He received it in our place. He died, gave up the ghost, was genuinely buried in the tomb, and then three days later came up out of the grave by the power of the Holy Ghost, and then he ascended to heaven where he's one day going to return for his bride, and he's going to be the judge of all mankind. That's the gospel. But when you fall away from the simplicity of that truth, And that carnal mind begins to work on you and say, how can you be so superstitious as to believe that a man died and came up out of that grave? Once you begin to believe that, 
then you deviate from what is true. And once you start getting off course, by the time you realize how far down the road you've come, you've lost sight of everything. All you have to do to lose your picture on your satellite, on your television, is just let that satellite dish be off by an inch or so. I'm, I guarantee you won't get an image to come across that television screen of yours. And once we lose sight of who the Lord is, then we lose our gospel. You lose your gospel, you lose Christ. You lose your Christ, you lose the Holy Ghost. You lose the Holy Ghost, you lose all sense of conviction. You lose conviction, you lose the power of conversion. You lose the power of conversion, you no longer have wheat in the church. It's a bundle of tares, sinners. So here's what we have, a false gospel. Now You can listen to television, you can hear it from time to time. We, we've had so many. Preachers that have just gotten involved with things they shouldn't have gotten involved with. I think now of a preacher many years ago had a church of about 10,000 people in Atlanta, Georgia. And this man, he's he's gone on into eternity now. But but this man had ended up in a situation where he had ladies in the church servicing the preacher's own staff in his church, servicing them physically to the point they believed that by sleeping with those preachers, they were helping the kingdom of God. When it finally caught up with them, they had the man and folks are getting ready to go to jail and stuff, they asked him the question, why in the world did you do this? And his answer was, I always knew what I thought, I always knew what I was doing was wrong, but I thought I was the exception. He thought he'd never get caught. You say, how did he end up getting caught? Too many of them babies in the church were growing up looking just like that pastor. That's what turned it off, you see. Think about it. So that false gospel comes along because it's preaching a false savior and it cannot save according to scripture. In the Bible, when people converted to Christianity, they repented of their sins. They turned from iniquity and started walking with God. There was a 180 degree change. It was nothing like what we have today where people just start going to church, but add Jesus to who they are without changing their life. True conversion is the change of heart. God gives a new disposition. He gives a new attitude. But when that false gospel is preached with a false savior, a false way of salvation, inevitably you're going to have false apostles that are going out preaching that message. Look at 2 Corinthians 11 verse 13. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. My pastor told a story one time about a preacher that had been married for a number of years, had several kids. He wanted to divorce his wife because he fell in love with another woman. He went to a pastor and asked the pastor if he could legally get rid of her. The pastor said, you have no grounds. Your wife has been faithful to you. She's been a good mama to them kids. You don't have any grounds. You know what he did? He turned around a little bit later. He said, I had a dream. And in the dream, an angel came to me and said to me, you can divorce this wife because you never loved her in the first place. You can marry the other one. That's what that's what a man said. Think about that. I'm telling you, folks, there's deception all over this earth. I know that the, that the devil can transform himself into an angel of light where he appears to be a messenger of God. That is how we ended up with Islam. 
out in the wilderness. Mr. Muhammad says he was out there in a cave and an angel by the name of Gabriel appeared to him. Gabriel only appears in our Bible. He would have never known of Gabriel had he not been familiar with the Gospels. And when he said that angel appeared to him and then told him to preach a religion of submission. Folks, you can go out there into that Muslim world today. You can see a world that's totally different than anything connected with a civilization that has Christianity at the foundation. I studied Arabic out there in the Middle East, lived with an Iraqi family, lived with a Palestinian family, traveled and preached and started churches throughout the Middle East. There's something wrong when that wife has to walk behind that husband and drop her eyes and unable to look a man in the face because she's got to look down all the time. Some wrong when it takes the witness of two women to equal that of one man in a court of law. Something wrong. All of this comes out of a culture that was produced by a bad way of salvation and a bad attempt at producing a new savior. When you think of God and you think of the simplicity that's in this, you have to know why the devil wants to have so many strategies to mislead us. I'm utterly convinced, I'm more convinced now than I was more than 30 years ago when I started preaching, but I'm certainly convinced now that religion was created by the devil to keep people from ever finding Christ. Yeah, from ever finding Christ. It's like people are in a mist, you know. We drive out here through the fog sometimes. That fog is so thick you can't see six feet in front of you. And I've been out here before driving in the fog and missed the town. That I was going to because you can't see the signs. You can't see anything. I just misjudge how many miles I'm driving. It's not that the town doesn't exist, but I missed it because of the fog. That's what religion is very often. It prevents people from recognizing what is obviously true and real. And that's the presence of God. I've told you before about uh, Brother Clendenin years ago when he was talking to a neighbor of his who's a lawyer. And the lawyer was saying about why he didn't go to church on Sundays. And Brother Clendenin said to him, he said, you know, you really ought to get into church, and serve God. That neighbor, the lawyer said, well, I don't see much difference between you and me. He said, you go to church on Sundays, you go religiously, you go every week. He said, I've got a boat, I'll take the my, my truck drive out to the lake and I do the lake on Sunday. I'm always out there. You're in the church. You're singing. You're talking to people. I'm out there on the lake. I get to fish. I get to enjoy nature. I'm out there where God is. I don't see much of a difference between you and me. Brother Clendenin said to his friend, he said, Ed, he said, you see that big oak tree over there? He said, yeah. He said, that oak tree that's out there in the front of your lawn. He said, yes, I, I see it. He said, that squirrel that's up there jumping from branch to branch, he, he said, um, is that oak tree, is it a living thing or is it a dead thing? He says, it's alive. Said, How do you know it's alive? He said, because the branches got leaves on it. They come back every spring and everything like that. That's how we know it's a living thing. He said, okay, that squirrel that's jumping from branches to branch. Does that tree know that that squirrel is jumping from branch to branch? He said, of course he doesn't know that. It's a tree. Can't know anything like that. And, and Brother Clendenin said to him, said, Ed, that, that's what I want you to understand. That tree is dead to the knowledge of the presence of that squirrel. And that's how your life is. You can smell the roses. You can drive to the grocery store. You can go out to the lake and you can enjoy nature. But you're dead to the presence of God. You have no idea that God is crawling around through the branches of your life because you're dead to the knowledge of that. Well, that gave him something to think about. 
But all across this earth, folks, there are people who don't know God. And it's a strategy of the adversary. Hold fast your profession and don't allow, don't allow anybody to change you. Yeah. When I get to Kenya, I'll be preaching there the same way I preach here. The same gospel. There won't be any difference. And we'll expect God to do great and mighty things there, just like we've seen God do here. But when I return, I expect you to believe the same thing then like you believe today. There's one way. His name is Jesus. Let's stand. No other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. If I must, then I may. God never obliges us to do anything except he gives us the ability to do it. God will never convict you of anything in your life except he gives you the power to walk away from it, to put it down. That's what conviction is all about. But as we serve God, remember, he set us free. He's a healer. He's a physician. He's a savior. He's a baptizer. He's a soon coming king. He'll do whatever is needed to make sure that you get to heaven. Amen. And don't let the devil deceive, deceive you. Next time your neighbor comes along and they're talking to you about that Bible and say, hold on now. Does that Bible really say what you say it says? You can show it to them. You can show it to them. And then if they say, well, I, I, I just still, I refuse to believe it. And you can just say that's, that's your own refusal. But I do believe that book and I'm going to hold on to it. Amen. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, you are wonderful. And when we think about your word and how strong it is, we can't help but say thank you. Now, Lord, there are a lot of us that are going to reach out to different people throughout this week. We're going to come in contact with folks that others are not going to come in contact with in this community and outside this community. We're praying you put your words in our mouth. And Father, we pray that lives will be changed, even if we have to speak to them in the grocery store aisle or in the bank or out in the grass in our yard. Lord, if we're riding with them in the car, I pray that you make every person in here today wise hearted and fill them with a spirit of understanding. Minister the word of the Lord. Father, let each of us be an example and a witness of the kingdom of God. And lead a multitude of people to Christ. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus name. And everyone said. Amen. Amen. Remember to be faithful.